0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of History Remastered. My name is Charlotte Vosper, I'm a history student and today I thought we'd start off with a big topic, the Tudors. And what made me think of this? Well for Christmas actually my friend gave me a Christmas tree decoration in the shape of a Tudor rose which I do absolutely love. And it had pride of place on the family Christmas tree, which others were not so excited about. Aside from the fact that I obviously think the decoration was amazing, I think it's also symbolic of a much wider trend. And that's the trend that I want to talk about today, our obsession with the Tudors. So, I want to start off with the idea that the Tudors are genuinely everywhere. I mean, they permeate our pop culture. Entirely, I think, at this point. Just before Christmas, we had the new Netflix miniseries, which was about Anne Boleyn, which was called Blood, Sex and Royalty at Hampton Court in the gift shop, you can buy actually bottles of beer with Henry VIII's face on them. Although I've never bought one, but I would love to still. And I think all of Henry VIII's wives, they all have their own Twitter profiles, as in, not obviously them, someone runs it as, you know, Catherine of Aragon, which is quite crazy. So I think it's fair to say that the Tudors, they do permeate our pop culture today. In fact, I think that trend is so much so that I often don't think we even realise we're consuming Tudor history when we are. It's become so commonplace in a way. For example, if I said to you, think of Henry VIII, you know, conjure an image kind of thing, you'd probably think of Henry VIII stood in a kind of boxy, Strong stance, maybe hands on hips, quite square looking, maybe with a sort of hat on with a feather in it, maybe even. (laughs) That might be pushing a bit far. And that stance, that pose, that comes from something. That comes from Hans Holbein the Younger's 1537 Whitehall mural. And the mural actually was lost in the 17th century, it burnt in a fire. And yet that image, that exact pose, that has continued through, through time. We've continued to think of Henry VIII stood in that position. The archetype of Henry VIII that comes to mind when you say his name. And that's not accidental. Henry VIII wanted to promote that version of himself during his own reign because it made him look strong, it made him look powerful But it's continued after that because that's how the Tudors have been remembered in history. And this argument comes from a historian called Tatiana String, who wrote about it in a book of essays which accompanied a conference called Tudorism, which happened in 2008. And she even noted that the logo for the conference was an outline of Henry VIII stood in that classic Holbein mural stance. Which is quite funny, considering that's the very thing that she was drawing attention to. There's that programme on CBBC that quite a few people listening, possibly, have seen. Or maybe even grown up watching. I was one of those. Horrible histories. And the drawings which were on the programme. When Henry VIII pops up and says, the terrible Tudors. That's the image of Henry VIII that you see. That's the stance that that Henry VIII stands in. And I think that says something, because when I ask you to conjure up an image of Henry VIII, and you're thinking of something like what's on the Horrible History programme, there's not necessarily a conscious awareness that it's come from something. It came from the 16th century mural. And we consume that history. We consume the history of it being lost in a fire, of it being reproduced, of people continuing to associate power and strength with Henry VIII. We don't consciously consider that history when we think of the Tudors in popular culture a lot of the time. And I also would just quickly, very quickly, like to put in a somewhat ironic side note maybe. I am aware (laughs) that in making my first podcast episode about the Tudors, I am actually contributing to this trend of everyone talking about the Tudors all the time and I am very aware of that. However, you know, we've got to go big on the first episode. And actually, I think this is maybe something slightly different. I'm trying to draw awareness to the obsession and the trends rather than actually just feeding into it. But I am very aware of the irony. So now you might be thinking, okay, fine, there's a trend. We all love the Tudors. Fantastic. You know, why have I bothered listening to however long you've been listening to so far? Well, the point was actually made by Charlotte Higgins in a 2016 Guardian article. She writes for the Guardian on culture and she wrote in this article that what we experience today is something called Tudor mania. So this kind of obsessive consumption of Tudor history and although other historians have argued it in kind of academic papers and journals I wanted to especially for the first episode anyway try and talk about an argument where you could, if you were listening and you wanted to, go and read up the article and it's not stuck behind a kind of academic paywall in some journal, which no one can access unless you're in an institution which subscribes. So I hope you'll be able to access that if you wanted to. But Charlotte Higgins basically said, and this is a quote from her, the Tudors are the first people in British history into whose eyes we feel we can gaze. And there's a lot in that statement and in that argument. She's essentially saying that the Tudors are people we feel that we can recognise and we can see ourselves in. We can reflect our own images back to ourselves in the Tudors almost. And she says that the Tudors come to represent a kind of English exceptionalism in a way. We see their gold and their glamour, but we also see their privy council we see their parliament and we feel that we can kind of relate to that almost relate to that kind of wanting of glory but also that constitutional aspect of government for example and I think it's true because I can't help thinking of more examples now I've started thinking about this we have Brexit when the UK left left the EU and at the time and afterwards even we saw a lot of likening between the break with Rome, Henry VIII's break with Rome, and Brexit. Larry Elliott, for example, wrote an article for The Guardian on the 18th of October 2020 titled, Boris Johnson's split from Brussels echoes Henry VIII's break with Rome. Essentially, Henry VIII cut off the Roman Catholic Church in England and made it his own, making himself head of his now- Church of England. And there are similarities in the sense that Henry VIII cut an international diplomatic tie with Rome when he broke with Rome. And there's also a financial element to the whole process. You know, he gained money from dissolving the monasteries in England, that kind of thing. But at the same time, the break with Rome is vastly different to Brexit. The break with Rome, for a start is largely about religion and about power as a monarch and controlling finances, controlling diplomatic relations, controlling who Henry VIII could marry. Those are not necessarily issues which would have featured that heavily in the Brexit vote where the British people voted to leave the European Union. Nevertheless, we see a lot of public discourse talking about the break with Rome and Brexit is similar. But the reason that we're seeing articles, like the one I was just talking about, the Larry Elliott article, where there are connections being drawn between the break with Rome and Brexit, is because people were using the Tudors and Tudor history to give themselves a bit of confidence, I guess. This idea that we left Rome, we left the Roman church, without a deal, if you can call it a deal necessarily. Henry VIII essentially passed Acts in Parliament, 1534, and cut off the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope. There wasn't a kind of amicable agreement. Henry VIII kind of just did it in the end. And that's what was happening, you know, in 2016, up until 2020, when you've got articles like this one, where the break with Rome is being used to give confidence to the possibility of a no-deal Brexit in the UK. And like I've said, there aren't a lot of historical similarities really, but here, Tudor history is being used to give ourselves reassurance. And I think that's a really interesting phenomenon that we're using Tudor history to make ourselves feel better. We're viewing the past, the Tudor past, through present issues today. And that's not the only example. I mean, women including Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth I, Mary I, have been name dropped in conversations about feminism. There is a mention of the caveat often that these women, Elizabeth I, Anne Boleyn, Mary I, they wouldn't have understood feminism as we do today. That when we talk of feminism, we're talking about first wave, second wave feminism, the 20th century. And that in the 16th century, obviously, these women didn't have these same ideals. They weren't in that context. So that caveat is often brought up, but it doesn't stop us from seeing articles like in History Extra, for example. There was one titled Anne Boleyn, a 16th century feminist question mark. And it explored this idea that you can still talk about kind of feminist principles, recognising the actions of Anne Boleyn as slightly feminist without maybe using the term and I think that is also really interesting because in that case we're looking back at Tudor women and applying again our present issues and concerns and that you can recognise concepts of equality in the 16th century and so you get this idea that we can kind of talk about feminist sentiments, feminist concepts without maybe using the term, and it's kind of okay. In the conclusion of the article, the author does actually put that they personally think it's legitimate to talk about Anne Boleyn as a feminist. And I think this partly comes from a wider change which happened in history as an academic subject, where you have the turn towards women's history, gender history, cultural history, that explodes in the second half of the 20th century. And so you do get this kind of looking for evidence of concepts which matter to us today. And obviously, it is incredibly important to write the history of women, to write the history of groups, individuals that have been marginalised in the past. But that doesn't mean that we can apply concepts like feminism that matter to women today to the women of the past. Because we live in different contexts. And I think part of it does also come from being uncomfortable with celebrating our Tudor history in amongst that Tudor mania. When actually part of that Tudor history was a relationship between a king and a queen, for example, where they weren't equals, where the king had more power than the queen. And I think there is an uncomfortability with that concept, given our ideals of gender equality today. And so when we turn to Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth I, Mary I as a feminist, I think that anxiety is coming through there too. As in the case of Brexit and the break with Rome, we're applying a lens of the present time, of present values, to Tudor history. And is that really fair? There's definitely some ethical questions in that, I think. So I think essentially what I want to get across in this kind of first episode Is that amongst the Tudor mania of today, you know, Henry VIII on beer bottles, my Christmas tree decoration, (laughs) the blood, sex and royalty Netflix show, whatever it is, that Tudor mania that Charlotte Higgins spoke about. And I'm sure you can, you're thinking of a hundred examples. I'm not, and it's annoying that I'm not mentioning them. We are often using our memory of the Tudors and Tudor history itself, I think for our own gain. We're using the Tudor history in the examples I've spoken about to provide a sense of security as we enter the unknown period of politics after Brexit or talking about the feminist tendencies of Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I. We're trying to liberate 16th century women in this effort of women's history which has come about in the 20th century and in doing so we're applying concepts like feminism which they didn't adhere to. We have to think about that sometimes the Tudors that we love and we obsess over and we remember they might actually be manipulative versions of their true 16th century selves. We're losing them to our own present issues today, I think. We're moulding them, so that they maintain relevancy in our world. And so I think my answer to the question of, can we ever escape the Tudors, is probably not, because more often than not, when we're talking about the Tudors and Tudor history, we're doing so in reference to ourselves. And because of that relevancy, I don't think we can ever really escape them and with that is the end so thank you very very much if you've made it this far and if you haven't then I mean you won't hear this bit but that's fine that's okay um it's only the first episode but if you enjoyed it then please follow along on the social media accounts which I will soon create (laughs) and put in the description of this podcast episode So thank you again and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Bye.